the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I should tell you ahead of time that I am equipped with a hot cup of tea. So there should not be any offensive coughing fit in the middle of the program. I should also let you know that Engineer Sam has a um, a spare glass of water in the engineer's booth. And we have medics standing by. Okay, maybe we don't have medics standing by, but at least you got the rest of it. Uh, anyway, want to thank uh, James Blend. He's our producer today. Sam Maupin, the engineer, ever ready, standing by for any possible emergency. We had talked earlier in the day about him leaving the studio for just a few moments to take care of some stuff he needed to do. And I said, oh, no problem. There's not going to be an <laughs> issue. And, of course, he... Uh, was right to be concerned. Uh, anyway, I received a, a message from one of the KPDQ listeners who was very concerned that maybe I have COVID and wondered if I had been tested and uh, and if I was distancing from my mother. Well, I do want to tell you I don't have COVID. I have um, the remnants of a cold, which I get pretty much every year at this time. Uh, so I don't have COVID, but I do get um, a kind of a cold and it leaves a, a scratchy throat, which um, happens pretty much every year. I have a series of events. I get tired and then I get these cold symptoms. So I so appreciated uh, not only the advice, they offered some advice on what to do, but also concern for my 91-year-old mother. Um, I will say that when I get even the twinge of anything, if my stomach feels upset or I have a cough or anything, I'm especially careful around my mother. I keep my distance from her. I make sure I'm masked around her and the things that I need to do for her, I do at some distance. So I'm trying to be very, very careful. And so far, she has managed to be very healthy through uh, everything that's happened over the last two years. So thank you for your concern. And no, I don't have COVID. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Today, we're going to talk with uh, Tim Muehlenhoff and Richard Langer. They are the authors of Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church, the book was published by InterVarsity Press. They received awards for this book. It's really a subject that, uh, particularly in the body of Christ, we really have to wrestle with. Um, and we're going to talk with them about that. They'll be joining me here um, in the second half of this first hour. So stick around if you can. I think it's going to be a good conversation. Well, in Oregon, once a school district has 3% or more of its students enrolled in a virtual public charter school, it can deny requests. Oregon lawmakers are considering a bill that's aimed to give families more choice on how their kids get an education. I don't get too excited because the choice is somewhat limited, but Oregon lawmakers are looking at a move, uh, at a, at more than 250 bills in the month long session. And this is the short year. One of the bills is a proposal that would give more parents a choice as to how their children get an education. Right now in the state of Oregon, once a school district has 3% or more of its students enrolled in a virtual public charter school outside the district, it can generally start denying requests. Well, school districts get thousands of dollars for each student, which helps funding for the public schools. That is the main reason the 3% cap came into existence. And while public schools rely on that money, some parents say the 
uh, cap takes away parents' choice. Our oldest daughter, says one parent, uh, she's being bullied at school. And uh, this father said online options so within his daughter's district uh, didn't work for her. So he tried to enroll his eighth grade daughter in a virtual public charter school. He hit send and within 10 minutes um, of him hitting send, he got a denial. Well, the district Lincoln County schools confirmed the denial was due to reaching the 3% cap. Uh, Zimmerman is not alone in his frustration. So the uh, Lawmakers are considering a bill aimed at giving families more choice on how their child gets an education. Again, within very narrow parameters, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Well, a public hearing was scheduled for today uh, in the House Human Services Committee, House Bill 4079, which is a 3% sales tax. And that would go to fund 750 um, monthly debit cards to the homeless and people under the poverty level. The sales tax would hit targeted items like electronic goods, computers, cell phones, handbags, jewelry, hunting rifles, and even clothing uh, all over a certain uh, undefined amount. There is discussion that the original sales tax language may be changed to only tax high-priced items like in the thousands. There's also discussion in the Capitol that this uh, sales tax would be shifted from homeless and poor to just micro-targeted people like pregnant women and foster homes. Um, there's some issues with that. Oregon state uh, government is already the fourth fastest and fourth biggest state uh, spending state government in America as measured by per person spending. This is on top of the billion surplus that stashed into a slush fund last year. Knowing this, if there's enough money to help pregnant women in Oregon, why don't the politicians use it instead of raising new taxes? Another concern, instead of raising new punishing taxes on vulnerable industries and their customers, why shouldn't government first remove the special corporation welfare it adds, uh, it affords rather to large companies and Hollywood film companies? Those privileged industries get tens of millions of our tax dollars for special tax breaks, overtaxing one group of businesses while lavishing tax breaks Uh, to another seems a bit unfair. Well, the bill is a Trojan horse and a spring-loaded tax trap, according to some critics. To pass any new tax, the law requires a 60% vote for new taxes. This 60% vote for new taxes rule was part of a uh, law passed by voters and placed into our Constitution to slow down new taxes. However, once a tax is approved, the politicians will unlawfully, illegally, fraudulently expand it um, next year, with only 50 percent of the vote, it's a ruse to avoid the 60 percent tax law approved by voters in the Constitution. Well, the t- today, I should say the tax stands at three percent. Yet next year, it could be changed to 10 percent. Today, the tax may apply only to pregnant women. And next year, it could be changed and expanded to cover every Oregonian under the poverty level. So it's subject to change. And once you start uh, offering monthly seven hundred and fifty dollar debit cards to people. Word will spread and it will attract people who don't need it and attract people from out of state, just like other welfare benefits have done here. The Atlantic magazine called Oregon a welfare utopia. We're famous nationwide for our welfare benefits. This is overwhelming our um, social services and our charities and is forcing government to raise taxes even higher. Case in point, the three percent sales tax. So we'll keep an eye on this. Um, but again, this three percent sales tax, they held a hearing if they stayed on schedule today. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a break. We'll return in a moment. And in the second half of this hour, we'll talk with two authors of the book, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We'll be back.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregon lawmakers would get a significant pay increase in quality, qualify rather, for a $1,000 a month child care under a proposal supported by minority advocates, a leading state union, and a Portland business group as a way to increase diversity in the Oregon legislature. Well, under the, the provisions of Senate Bill 1566, the base annual salary for a lawmaker would go from 32839 to about 57000 uh, they also would still get uh, $151 a day for expenses when the legislature is in session and maintain access to their campaign donations to cover other expenses. If it's approved, unlike after past attempts uh, were derailed, the pay increase would take effect on January 2023 or in January and would apply to all 30 senators and 60 representatives. The salary would be tied to Oregon's um, mean wage that was calculated by the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2020 to be $56,880. A similar proposal last year that would have provided lawmakers with slightly lower salaries would have cost an estimated $4 million over 18 months, according to a legislative Fiscal study. Well, that bill died in the 2021 legislature, but the Senate Rules Committee considered the new proposal at a hearing on Thursday. Senator um, Floyd Prozanski, a Democrat out of Eugene, a municipal prosecutor, is one of the chief sponsors. He said at the hearing that low pay deters Oregonians from serving in the legislature, and he urged the new salary to be approved. It will basically ensure a living wage for legislators. Oregon health officials will end the mask mandate for indoor public places and schools no later than March 31st and might do so earlier if COVID-19 hospitalizations drop to around 400 occupied beds, according to the Oregon Health Authority. This was yesterday. Well, the evidence from Oregon and around the country is clear. Masks saves lives, says the uh, Dr. Dean Seidlinger in a statement, Oregon is one of only 11 states with an indoor mask mandate, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Health officials expect to see about 400 COVID-19 hospitalizations by the end of March, about the same number as before the Omicron wave. If hospitalizations drop to that number earlier, the state will consider lifting the mandate then. Once the mandate is lifted, businesses will be free to set their own mask policies, according to the health authority. Oregon announced its projected end date for masks at the same time it extended existing requirements temporary mask rules were set to lapse this week with state officials unveiling what they refer to as new permanent rules i don't know why they choose that word but nonetheless to extend those along with a promise to end the requirements by the 31st the state's decision to extend masking requirements beyond this week came despite hours of testimony opposing the permanent rule the health authorities published summaries with some of the concerns expressed in public testimony and provided responses including information about mask safety and the rationale behind mandating masks for everyone, including the vaccinated. Meanwhile, former Oregon candidate and ballot measure advocate Bill Sizemore has announced today that he's uh, going to run for the Republican primary for Oregon governor. Bill Sizemore was a well-known figure in the 1990s for running many pro-taxpayer ballot measures, many of which are on the books today. One measure was requiring a double majority for tax increases. That was ballot measure 47 back in 96. Another measure gave people the right to vote on a major light rail project after the lawmakers passed it but didn't bother to ask voters for their opinion. 
He authored Measure 7, which required compensation for when the government takes people's private property, Ballot Measure 7, in 1996. And in 1994, he passed a ballot measure that enacted budget-minded reforms on the public employee's retirement system, which ironically was tossed out by the courts who were on the same retirement system. That was Ballot Measure 8 in 1994. One of the last measures that Bill Sizemore was able to get on the ballot was one limiting Uh, What could be done with the credit scores? Ballot measure 42 back in 2006. Well, Bill Sizemore ran for governor in 1988 against incumbent John Kitzhaber. He floated running for governor in 2010, and he announced his candidacy for Oregon Republican governor on the Lars Larson program yesterday. Or maybe it was today. Well, one of the uh, first comment uh, uh, on all of this is where has he been and whether or not he has a chance of getting the Republican nomination. Well, it's apparently not all fun and games at the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. Complaints from athletes and officials are pouring in about the alleged poor living conditions, dining options, isolating rooms and debilitating weather conditions, according to social media posts. One German alpine skiing coach criticized the catering in Beijing and raised concerns about limited food options to fuel the high performing pro athletes. The catering is extremely questionable because really it's not catering at all. There are no hot meals, he says. There are crisps, some nuts and chocolate and nothing else. This shows a lack of focus on high performance sport. Team USA reportedly came prepared and brought extra food to the Winter Games, including bags of pasta. There have also been concerns about how COVID-19 is being handled in the Olympic Village. Uh, a Russian biathlon uh, competitor took uh, to Instagram to discuss her experiences under Beijing's strict quarantine conditions. I've been getting this for breakfast, lunch and dinner for five days now. I've lost a lot of weight and my bones are sticking out. And we're talking about high performance athletes. I can eat anything. I can't eat anything else. I don't know anything about my Corona test. Uh, She said since uh, deleting the uh, Instagram post, I only sleep all day because I don't even have the strength to get out of bed. I only eat three handfuls of pasta a day because it's just impossible to eat the rest of the food. My stomach hurts. I'm very pale and I have huge black circles around my eyes. Uh, I want all this to end. I cry every day. I'm very tired, she wrote. Uh, per the Associated Press. Well, this is concerning. Some are suggesting the COVID tests are rigged to prevent some athletes from competing and the food is um, not uh, well balanced for the same reason. Uh, that same Russian athlete added that she ate all the fat uh, on a piece of meat because it was uh, she was very hungry. She also claimed that some athletes were getting worse food than others. Athletes who test positive for COVID-19 at the Winter Games Uh, But are asymptomatic, uh, might isolate in a designated hotel. For those experiencing COVID-19 symptoms, immediate hospitalization is required. Athletes can return to competition once they have submitted two consecutive negative tests. One Belgian uh, skeleton racer, I'm not sure what that is, uh, broke down in tears in a video she posted to Instagram explaining how scared and confused she was about the COVID-19 protocols there. She tested positive for the virus when she arrived, later tested negative when she thought she was being transported to return to the Olympic Village. She was taken by ambulance to another isolation destination. Uh, The head of the German delegation called the hotel accommodations unreasonable while expressing concern about the isolation conditions for three-time Nordic combined gold medalist Eric Frenzel, who was placed in quarantine after testing positive for COVID-19. The Finnish Olympic team formerly of uh, one athlete, Marco Atilia, 
formerly of the Chicago Blackhawks, tested positive 18 days ago, but produced several negative results prior to departure. Head coach uh, there blasted Marco has been with our team for about a week before he came here and he tested negative. We know that he's fully healthy and ready to go. And that's why we think that China, for some reason, they won't uh, respect his human rights. And that's not a great situation. In other words, they're suggesting positive tests for certain athletes who are negative. One Polish speed skater said that she was traumatized after officials released her from isolation and returned to the Olympic Village at 3 a.m., but then brought her back to isolation, claiming they made a mistake. I was sitting in the ambulance. It was 3 a.m. I was crying like crazy because I didn't know what was going on. I didn't feel safe at all, she said. Uh, that uh, rather they had told me at midnight that I could go out and five minutes later that I could not. Uh, they told me there's no uh, so many politics um Stuff that you will not understand. It's China, end quote. Well, the International Olympic Committee released a statement about the matter saying we are aware of the complaints raised by some athletes, particularly with regard to food and temperature, variety and portion size. The issues are currently being addressed together with Beijing 2022 and the respective management of the facilities concern they went on to say we feel for every athlete who cannot compete because of COVID-19 infection the protocols have been put in place to ensure safe olympic games for everyone all the cases have managed in full accordance with the rules stated by the playbooks and in the adjustments which were made to the protocols but again athletes are questioning the the veracity rather of some of those tests Matt Lewis suggests that these are the dystopia Olympics, saying there are plenty of good reasons why Americans are largely tuning out of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. There's the fatigue factor as the 2020 Tokyo Summer Games took place just a few months ago in summer of 2021, having been delayed for a year because of COVID, the pandemic. There's the um, anticlimactic visuals of, once again, empty Olympic stadiums, leaving no live audience for a TV viewer to relate with as magnificent athletes perform their astounding feats. But more than anything, the Beijing Games are simply creepy and sad. And he goes on from there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we'll talk with uh, Tim Muhlenhoff, as well as Richard Langer. They are co-authors of Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in today's polarized world, Christians often have, well, committed biblical rationales for very different positions. How do we discern between core confessional beliefs and secondary issues? How do we cultivate better understanding and compassion for those with whom we disagree? Well, my next two guests offer a guide to help Christians navigate disagreements with one another, and they provide lessons from conflict theory and church history on how to negotiate differing biblical convictions and repair interpersonal ruptures. They help us discover how we can navigate differences and forge community by speaking in both truth and love. Their book is simply titled Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. Well, Ten Mulehoff, uh, Dr. Mulehoff is a professor of communication at Biola University in California and a speaker and research consultant for the Center for Marriage and Relationships. His books include I Beg to Differ, Authentic Communication, 
the uh, God Conversation and Defending Your Marriage. Richard Langer, Dr. Langer, is a professor of biblical and theological studies at Talbot, uh, Talbot School of Theology and director of the Office for the Integration of Faith and Learning at Biola University. Together, they are the co-authors of Winsome Persuasion, uh, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book Award in Apologetics and Evangelism. Um, they are co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project, which seeks to introduce civility and compassion into our um, uh, discussion and differences. So, so grateful to have you both. And I think I just lost one of the two, and I'm not sure which <laughs> of the two. This technology, I'm telling you, to, who do I have with me at this moment? You have Rick Langer with you. Good to be with you, Georgie. And I'm not sure what happened to Tim, but I'm here. Well, it was my fault, so I apologize. And uh, my engineer, Sam, will get him back on in just a moment. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is such a timely subject, and it's as if you anticipated it would become even more timely as we are two years into the pandemic and political upheaval and all of that has threatened unity in the church. Let me just begin by asking what motivated you to take up this subject, uh, particularly in the context of believers uh, relating to one another. Well, you know, it was partly because we'd written a book about Winston Persuasion, the other title that you mentioned, that was geared toward how do we communicate with the non-Christian world about areas we may disagree on, and that could be anything from LGBTQ issues to political issues to things like belief in God. So how do we convey that in kind of a winsome, persuasive fashion? Well, we were talking to people. I remember going to a men's retreat, and we were I was talking about the book, and I was chatting with a guy afterwards, and he kind of shook his head, and he looked at me and said, Rick, this isn't a problem I have with the outside world. This is a problem I have with the people sitting right here beside me in the pew. And I thought, you know, that's a really good point. And that got us to thinking about how different it is, actually, when you disagree with fellow believers. Yeah, Because you kind of expect that you'll disagree with the world on certain issues, but you're thinking the guy you're sitting beside in the pew is going to be, you know, holding your hand and singing kumbaya with you, (laughs) and suddenly he's on the other side. And it's really, really hard. Well, Dr. Mulhoff, thank you so much for joining us, and I apologize for for hanging up on you at the very start. <laughs> I thought, ooh, we need we need win some conviction. <laughs> it wasn't my intention. <laughs> well, in the introduction uh, to of the book, Win Some Conviction, you write that this division wasn't started by calls for impeachment, and we're referring to the previous administration, the pandemic, or Black Lives Matter protests. We all have opinions on those subjects. You make the point that cracks in our unity were all already present, and these challenging events simply brought them front and center where they can no longer be ignored. This is not a new phenomenon to this particular generation. This really was um, present in the very early church. Well, we make the argument that one of the greatest challenges to the early church and modern church is quarreling. If you take a look and read the New Testament like in a weekend, you would see that quarreling division, disagreements really pop up uh, among key church leaders. So in some ways, things I think are bad today, and I think social media has played a role in that, but I think we need to be comforted a little bit that quarreling has always been part and parcel of the church, and we quarrel over politics, social issues, uh, theological issues. So Uh, We better try to figure this out because the unity of the church and our ability to be a voice in today's uh, communication climate really is going to be contingent on us having a certain type of unity and having our disagreements 
in a way in which we speak truth and love. So it's possible to maintain that we have some disagreements, but at the same time have unity and love. That's possible. Uh, theoretically possible, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and honestly, uh, you know, Rick, uh, my co-author and co-director, he was a pastor for 20 years. And so I, I think Rick has seen it happen well, disagreements. But unfortunately, today, our Winsome Conviction project has been around for two and a half years. And we've unfortunately seen churches and Christian organizations do it really badly. Mm. So we, need, we have the potential of, I think, being an example of how to do this in a way that would be good, but we know the book of Proverbs says life and death are in the power of the tongue. And to be honest, we've seen both uh, people speaking life and death, and uh, you can see the result in a lot of our churches, unfortunately, is that COVID has moved people away from each other. Uh, Politics has moved people away from each other. Everybody says we need to handle race and speak about it, but critical race theory is literally separating churches from each other. You know, how can we use it? Should we use it? And so uh, Rick and I like to joke around that business is pretty good right now. (laughs) (laughs) You wish it wasn't, but it's pretty good right now. We wish it wasn't, yeah. (laughs) You make the point that, that outside the Christian community, we anticipate having biblical convictions that are contested or despised. But when our personal convictions are contested by fellow church members, everything changes. We feel attacked from behind, as you put it. We feel both uh, um, unexpected, that it's unexpected and wrong, and we are personally hurt. There's a real difference when it comes from within the family, because we do have that connection where we don't necessarily with those outside the household of faith. You know, that's really true. And one of the challenges, I think, for us is, I think non-Christians, when they form a conviction about a particular issue, they, you know, they talk to other people, they think about things, and they kind of think, well, what do I really feel about this? And their conviction is formed to express what they think and what they value. For Christians, we're usually saying, I don't really care what I think, I care what Jesus thinks, and we form our conviction accordingly. And so when someone tells you your conviction is wrong, they haven't said you've gotten yourself wrong, you've gotten Jesus wrong or you've gotten the Bible wrong, and so you're a false prophet. And so everything gets amped up when Christians disagree on these kinds of matters, and that makes it far more difficult to be able to say, all right, how can we find peace together without having to kind of convert each other to each other's viewpoint? Mm-hmm. Um, you make the point that one of the main causes of discord is how we think about our convictions, and you offer three examples, and kind of set us straight on how we ought to think about them. One of them is strongly held convictions lead to uncivil discourse. Is that the only option that we have? Is is it possible to, to live differently? Well, I think part of what happens is we hold our convictions strongly, but we don't necessarily think them through very thoroughly. So we just know that this issue is right. And it may be something like being pro-life or whatever that I completely agree with. But when we haven't thought it through, if somebody raises a question, we get really defensive. And so that's part of what I want to say. It isn't so much that we hold our convictions strongly, but they're kind of, I I say this cautiously, but they're kind of half-baked. And I mean that literally in the sense that we aren't done thinking them through. Not that they're silly, but we haven't really thought Mm -hmm. it through. and We get really, really sensitive. So part of our hope is to say, hey, take a minute and think through your conviction all the way from beginning at kind of core 
confessional beliefs about, you know, the sacredness of human life that's made in the image of God or whatever it may be, biblical commands, and then think through core values and know what your particular action plan is. But thinking across that spectrum helps your conviction to be much better shaped and also probably helps you realize, oh, there's a few places along the line here where I kind of had to think, and maybe someone else would think differently, so there might be more room for giving room to another person to breathe about some of these issues. You also make a distinction between absolutes and preferences. We often think convictions are about moral absolutes when that may not be the case. Yeah, that's that's right. If you read Romans 14, I think what Paul does is he kind of gives a really helpful kind of expanding our thinking. So he, there's areas that we would say are mere preferences. Who cares if you came to Christ through Paul or Apollos or Cephas? Who cares who baptized you? It, it isn't a preference as much as this kind of a historical action. It's fundamentally trivial, and we shouldn't form a conviction about that. It's just not a thing to fight about. Other things are areas that are absolute, the deity of Christ, resurrection, all kinds of things like that. But Paul in Romans 14 occupies, develops kind of a, a middle ground that you might call personal convictions. They're personal because you don't all have to agree, but it's actually a matter of conviction. Paul said, I want you to be fully convinced in your own mind. Uh, you're going to stand before Jesus and give an account for how you practice. And here he's referring to days and diets. You know, what are you eating, what days you're worshiping on? He says, look, these are important. He's got a bunch of Jewish believers uh, in Rome who are reading this, and they care a lot about days and diets. You have a bunch of Gentiles who don't, and he's basically saying, look, this is an area where you have freedom, perhaps even an obligation to develop a conviction, but you don't have an obligation to have everyone agree. You don't have to export your conviction, so to speak, but rather practice it before you. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and, oh, I did it right. I put them both on hold. Yes. Okay. <laughs> We're talking with Tim Muehlhoff, Dr. Muehlhoff, and uh, Dr. Richard Langer. They are the co-authors of Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. Imagine that. We'll be back in a moment to continue that conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Mulhoff and Dr. Richard Langer, co-authors of Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. The book is published by InterVarsity Press and is a, a great read if we want to demonstrate the unity that Jesus prayed about in what John 17 that would demonstrate to the world something very significant about who he is and who we are in relationship to him. Um, you make the point that um, one of the major things uh, to be concerned about, in fact, um, you asked the question in the second chapter, what is the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ today? And of course, we could come up with a laundry list of issues. Uh, but the, the main issue that you make the point uh, in making is that uh, quarreling is the, the number one threat to the church, that we cannot, will not, do not get along, that unity is lacking. Uh, talk a bit about how significant that is and where we go from here in attempting to reflect what Jesus um, desires for us and how we relate to each other. Well, one of the things Jesus says is that the children of God will be known as peacemakers. 
And the book of Proverbs has much to say about uh, a gentle word turns away wrath. And Paul, in many of his letters, say, I want you to put off, you know, anger, wrath. I want you to put on kindness, compassion. So what we say, we tend to focus on, and rightfully so, right doctrine, uh, biblical perspective. But what we see in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Proverbs, how you say it is just as important as what you say. So Paul will say in Ephesians, he'll say, I want you to speak truth, content, but I want you to do it in love. That's the relational. Peter will say, I want you to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. That's your content. But I want you to do with all gentleness and reverence. And that's the relational. So, Georgine, I would say today, when we say that we're in an argument culture, that's a term coined by Deborah Tannen, a Georgetown linguist, that really the argument culture is how we're talking to each other. We've had these political, social disagreements in the past. What people are particularly noting today is that the way we're talking to each other has become very concerning. There's a survey that we quote that 98% of Americans, now think about this, in a time in which we don't agree about anything, it seems, 98% of us agree that incivility has become a major threat to this country. And 68% of Americans would say, I think we're at crisis levels of incivility. So the church has a great opportunity today to show how can we talk about critical race theory, immigration, nature of marriage, mask wearing, um, all these issues. We can show that we have disagreements just like anybody else, but the way we talk to each other is that there's a deep commitment to speaking truth and love. And sadly, that is not the reputation of Christians today by non-Christians. They see us as being just as incivil uh, as anybody else. So we need to be peacemakers. That doesn't mean we compromise our beliefs, but we, we um, believe that how we say it is just as important as the convictions that we are discussing. So where do we begin? I think you've rightly characterized where we are in the culture in general, but certainly where we are in the church as well. Where do we begin to make a difference? Uh, Buy our book, Georgine, without a doubt. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Interestingly enough, I would agree. No, but, you know, so, Georgine, our thinking has really morphed even since the writing of this book. So we now, when we work with a church, let's say, or a Christian organization, we believe every conversation is actually three conversations. You have the actual one where you're going to sit and talk about an issue, but we believe that there's a pre-conversation and a post-conversation. So we ask people when we're going to come in and work with the church, let's say, that everybody does a five-day devotional that focuses on your heart attitude, your spirit, your emotions, because if we don't do the hard work beforehand of preparing ourselves for difficult conversations, then we know that this is going to go south. So we think the hard work we need to do before you ever open your mouth and talk about mask wearing or vaccinations or race or issues like that, if your heart's not in the right spot and you're not prepared yourself spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, then we know that this conversation is going to go south pretty quickly. And then we believe in a post-conversation where let's say you and I have a disagreement 
Uh, and we actually think we make progress. But then I leave that conversation and go to my in-group. And in that in-group, we talk very uncharitably about people that we disagree with. And I might even get talked out of the progress that we just made. Like, oh, no, no, no. Remember, we're, we're opposed to it because of this, 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 and this. So if we don't do the hard work after the conversation to still be charitable and open-minded, then we feel like that actual middle conversation is really going to go nowhere. So I think the place to start is to look at our heart, like King David did, you know, God search my heart, and to find out where I'm at spiritually towards a a fellow brother or sister in Christ or my non-Christian neighbor. I know the fact that we are all Americans, we we have certain rights and we want to champion the rights that we have. Um, does being an American make it more challenging for us or is this a phenomenon that you're seeing elsewhere? You know, I, I think America has amplified things that lead to, um, you know, we celebrate our differences and we cling with a zeal to our kind of individual autonomy. And the idea of giving up something for the sake of someone else or counting my individual good as secondary to the common good uh, is, I think, actually culturally hard for us. And that does make some of these things harder. So, so honestly, a lot of this is that the, the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it? Mm. You know, we, I really worry sometimes people don't actually want to make peace with someone whose opinions they find unpleasant or unsavory. They just really don't want peace. They, they just want the person to change or be gone. Well, that, that leads to my next question. The purpose of the conversation that one has with those who are members of the body of Christ, we are connected to one another, um, is the goal to simply hear one another out, to convince one's opponent, if you will, uh, or to make peace and unity the core value that we pursue? What's ultimately the goal? Yeah. I, you know, I, to me, the goal really is that issue that you hit on at the end to say, how can we preserve unity, but understand this is kind of relational unity, not necessarily uniformity of belief. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point we have to say, hey, this person disagrees with me, but, you know, he's still my brother or sister in Christ. And uh, we will we will walk together with the Lord and trust him for some of these differences because our unity is more important than our uniformity. Well, I so appreciate the the model that you have provided in the book, Winsome Conviction, and I know that you have worked with many organizations and churches walking them through this process. Um, can you give us a, a an example where peace and unity was restored, where uh, disagreement and perhaps anger had once um, been in place? Well, I, I, I'll mention where anger got replaced mm. by understanding is, you know, this issue of race, I think everyone agrees that the topic of race is one that the church needs to wade into. We simply cannot be on the sidelines when it comes to the racial issues that we're facing, because, you know, those issues were around in the New Testament. As, as Rick mentioned, you know, Jew, Jewish believers, Gentile believers were really at odds over some really important mm-hmm. things. So there were uh, some pastors who really disagreed about what to do with the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was talk about, you know, should we put a banner on the, on the side of our church? And uh, one person was interested in doing it, but then what about police officers? Can we do this and that? And it really led to some hard conversations. 
And so we met with these two individuals, and, and, and I must say kudos to these two church leaders for willing to do this, like we're going to come together. And we put them through a series of exercises where not only did they understand what they believed, but it was kind of they got the backstory uh, of how did you arrive at these beliefs. The Harvard Negotiation Project, one of the top mediator groups in the world, says the biggest mistake we make is we only trade conclusions. We don't mm-hmm. share how we arrived at the conclusion. And so these two leaders took weeks uh, basically discussing their backgrounds, how they grew up, uh, how these convictions solidified. And then they shared it with each other in some kind of unique ways that we're playing around with at the, the uh, Winter Conviction Project. And it wasn't that they agreed totally on what to do next, but the tone had changed. They understood Anger, one another. Hmm. They understood each other and had sympathy for each other. That's an interesting thing, is I can be empathetic but not sympathetic. I can imagine your life and your convictions, but I'm not necessarily sympathetic to them. And so what we saw happen a little bit was that understanding followed by sympathy. And then a re this was the best part was a recommitment that we're brothers in Christ, even though we still disagree about how to proceed about race. Um, that, that to me was a powerful moment. That's going to, Georgine, that's going to have to be reinforced. It can't just be that one moment. It's going to have to be constant. And let me say one way that we can do that is through the communion table is that despite our differences, we come to the Lord's table and reaffirm a savior who is willing to give his body and blood for us. That's a beautiful moment when I can sit down to brothers and sisters who I might disagree with politically, but we focus on the sacrifice of Christ and the mission of Christ. That's kind of a nice, thing to regularly do to remind ourselves that we are in the family together, even though we have these disagreements. Well, the book is just so timely and excellent. I would agree that our listeners need to get winsome (laughs) conviction, disagreeing without dividing the church. And I just imagine how we might um, reflect out into the world if we would do what you've just described on the various issues that tend to divide us. Thank you both so much for taking the time to write the book, for working and ministering uh, with the churches and, and Christian organizations, and for talking with us here today. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you. Georgine. Really appreciate it. God bless. Again, the title of the book, and I'm trying desperately to figure out the technology. I got it. The book, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. News and traffic will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing Sam Moppin engineering. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with John Hopper. He's the author of Questioning God, Answering Questions Worth Asking. And on Thursday, Tony Ranke, uh, God, Technology, and the Christian Life will be my guest uh, on the program. Taking a look at some of the day's news, Dr. Eric Lander, who's a former member of the Biden cabinet, he served as director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, resigned on Monday evening after an internal White House investigation found credible evidence he'd spoken harshly and disrespectfully to colleagues in front of other colleagues. And in a classic case of recognition issues, children have a more difficult time recognizing faces that are masked than adults, which could harm their ability to navigate through social interactions with their peers and teachers, according to a new 
uh, newly released study. Now, the hope is that once the masks are no longer required, they'll catch up. In a student walkout, high school students near Chicago walked out of class Monday after being told to wear masks to attend classes. The Sagamon uh, County Circuit Court Judge Raylene Grischow issued a temporary restraining order against the Illinois Governor Pritzker's uh, requirement that masks be worn in schools to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The battle lines are drawn and continue. Issuing a Nord Stream 2 warning, the United States and Germany announced their united approach to deterring further Russian aggression against Ukraine. With President Biden warning that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will not be operational if Russia follows through with an invasion of Ukraine. Now, this is rather interesting, given the fact that um, Germany relies heavily upon Russia for its fuel. A CNN panel blasted Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia, over a photo taken of her unmasked with masked schoolchildren on Monday's Inside Politics. Now, won't you be glad when this is no longer an issue and we're not following politicians and individuals, some of whom have been very outspoken about what you should do and unwilling to do it themselves, but it will no longer be an issue who's wearing one and who's not. President Biden is at odds with governors from both parties over school mask mandates. The president has been going after several states for not imposing mask mandates in schools, attacking governors like Greg Abbott of Texas and Ron DeSantis of Florida for banning mandates. But increasingly, more um, Democrats are also moving in that direction. Jonathan Turley weighs in and pointing out that GoFundMe's suspension of millions to support protesting truckers in Canada shocked many, particularly when the company initially announced its uh, intention to distribute the money to other charities. Senator Josh Hawley says the United States is better off without Ukraine joining NATO. But when he sent a letter to Secretary of State Tony Blinken last week explaining why the usual Washington suspects, the people who delivered two failed wars, botched the evacuation of Afghanistan and enabled the rise of China, had their usual meltdown. Again, according to Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Bert, uh, rather Vern Buchanan, now in its second year, the Biden administration, along with congressional Democrats, is still prescribing the wrong medicine for healing the economy during COVID. He says, despite the narrowest of majorities in the House and Senate, Democrats insist on governing through one party rule. That's political malpractice. Of course, both parties do it when they're in uh, in power. Ambassador Nikki Haley weighs in, saying every American should be worried about the covid generation. Over the past two years, our country's children have lost a huge part of their education and they're now at risk of losing their futures. That might be something of an overstatement, but they certainly have experienced a deficit. In pending uh, litigation, Swedish price comparisons firm Price Runner said on Monday it was suing Alphabet-owned Google for about 2.1 billion euros. That's about 2.4 billion dollars. The latest firm to take legal action alleging the search giant manipulated search results. And in an airline deal, Frontier is buying Spirit Airlines in a three billion dollar deal to create the nation's fifth largest carrier one day i'll tell you my experience on frontier which i will never if it's possible repeat again well rust key medic um sherilyn schaefer and of course that's the movie has filed a lawsuit against the movie's producers as well as several crew members claiming she can no longer work following her experience on the movie set she's of course referring to the shooting uh, on that set and give me a v a c c i n e Cheerleaders from the 
Satcham North and Satcham East high schools are joining cheerleaders in New York protesting a COVID-19 vaccine requirement for the 2022 New York State Cheerleading Championships. Give me a V. Give me an A. Well, we'll see what happens. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll return to wind our way through some of the news. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as the Olympics ratings crater, some in the media are ignoring the uh, the truth behind much of what's being avoided. Um, Edward Morrissey points out that not once does the spun mention the uh, pushback on China's genocide of the Uyghurs or its demolition of freedom in Hong Kong, not to mention the whole COVID pandemic that managed to kill millions of people around the world. Why do you think the Olympic ratings are so much lower this time than the last, asked Spun at the end. Come on, man. Actually, Axios manages to avoid those answers, too. Blindness appears to be contagious in this case, it goes on to say. Well, ESPN, NBC, they've straddled the fence on genocide in the their coverage of the Olympic Games, perhaps because the Olympic Games are supposed to be something other than that. But fair play is only effective if both sides are willing to agree to certain rules and China won't play by the rules. ESPN and NBC are willing to do the gymnastics to toe the neutral line in their presentation of the games. But both end up sounding like propaganda pawns of the Chinese communist. Um, Emmy Griffin points out in their coverage of the events lost in all of this of course are the athletes who have spent some a lifetime preparing for this competition uh, in which politics is not supposed to be a factor and yet politics has for many of the olympic games winter and summer uh, been a factor i hope we can at least celebrate the athletes who by all accounts are struggling with some of the accommodation that they have been subjected to this time around and i hope we're remembering to pray for those whose lives have been totally disrupted to accommodate the games. Um, We're thinking about the Uyghurs, uh, believers, and others uh, whose lives have been torn apart to create the image that everything's okay, there's nothing to see here. Well, one senator's stroke has left Democrats in a temporary minority. New Mexico Senator Ben Ray Luan is expected to be out for four to six weeks, hoping to return to help uh, the president push through a liberal Supreme Court justice. Keep that senator in your prayers. A charter school for black indigenous people of color. They're referred to as BIPOC. I'd never heard it put quite that way, but BIPOC students um, is going to open in Portland. It's called Hala Public um, Charter School is expected to open in the fall of 2022 in partnership with the Reynolds School District. They're going to focus on what's in the community, like it's very strong entrepreneurial focus. There'll be a very strong hip hop focus around uh, kids learning styles. Some have questioned whether or not uh, this is, in fact, constitutional. Hugh Hewitt weighed in on that on Twitter. Democrats are beginning to pull away from President Biden on the mask mandates. Those running for governor see it as a losing issue. Eric Erickson says, how bad must the internal polling for Democrats be to see them suddenly racing to end mask mandates and play up uh, natural immunity after two years of dogmatic resistance? Well, these new candidates may not have fallen into that category. But Carol Markowitz says, super glad that the uh, Dem governors uh, all got on the um, the bandwagon about um, Uh, To avoid getting smoked in the midterms, changing course. Memo today, but as the country, we need the admission masks don't work and will never, ever return, ever. 
Well, that guarantee is not in place. George Washington University President Mark Wrighton has changed his tune on posters critical of China. President Wrighton originally agreed uh, they were racist and wrong, but admits now he responded hastily. He wrote, I want to be very clear. I support freedom of speech, even when it offends people. And creative art is a valued way to communicate on important societal issues. And let's hope there's a distinction made between the communist Chinese government who makes the decisions in that country and the people of China who are absolutely amazing. Rumble offered Joe Rogan $100 million to switch platforms. They'd even include the new... Um, deleted episodes in a four-year contract if he agrees to move over. Rent hits uh, an all-time high as inflation crunches down hard on families. And quarantined athletes in China complain of squalor. Athletes claim they are fed tiny amounts of food. Some question the odd timing of COVID-positive test results. The athletes are discovering China really doesn't care about their human rights. USA Today published that article if you're interested in more. Canadian police seized um, fuel from Ottawa truckers. They also outlawed honking their horns at night as the police use emergency powers to crack down on protesters and the residential uh, areas. They are currently um, functioning. Neighbors have just about had it. President Biden canned a toxic science advisor, and Antifa is behind an SUV attack on the Freedom Convoy when Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau falsely smeared the Freedom Convoy, which is made up of truckers and others protesting his vaccine mandates. Not only was he spreading misinformation, but he was also effectively blowing a dog whistle. Over the weekend, an SUV plowed into a group of Freedom Convoy protesters, injuring four people. It was no accident. It was an act of terror carried out by a 42-year-old Antifa a member with a litany of sexual assault allegations, including pedophilia. <clears throat> this explains <clears throat> why there's been little reporting on the attack. By many in the uh, the media, the IRS has backed down on creeping its um, facial recognition plan. The announced that it was abandoning a plan to use facial recognition technology on taxpayers after it received bipartisan blowback from Congress. The IRS claimed its intention for the now abandoned plan was for security purposes in an effort to prevent scammers from accessing taxpayers' personal records. As IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick explained, the IRS takes taxpayer privacy and security seriously, and we understand the concerns that have been raised. Everyone should feel comfortable with how their personal information is secured, and we are quickly pursuing short-term options that do not involve facial recognition. Well, security is a growing concern for the IRS, which noted in 2019 that the agency faces an annual average of 1.4 million cyber attacks. Yet the implementation of facial recognition technology actually opens a whole new can of worms as potential problems and dangers, as well as massive privacy violation implications. In fact, the General Services Administration, which is responsible for handling basic services for the federal government itself refuses to employ facial recognition technology as the agency doesn't trust that it would be used appropriately. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Biden cleared crack pipes for racial equality. Evidently, minority Americans don't have the same access to safe crack pipes that white Americans do. Do you really want black Americans to have? Anyway, 
A $30 million grant program that will be overseen by the Department of Health and Human Services will distribute funds to local governments and nonprofits for the purpose of helping drug addicts get clean, smoking kits and supplies. Now, there might be some logic to it. I'm having trouble seeing it, but I'm open to the possibility. Organizations focusing on serving underserved communities are to be prioritized for receiving these grants expressly for advocating and advancing racial equality. Rather than spending millions in taxpayer dollars on safer crack pipes, wouldn't that money be better spent on efforts to help people get off crack pipes altogether? Now, again, there may be more to the story, but this is what I know. The Supreme Court has halted the redraw of Alabama's congressional map, and the inspector general opened an investigation into the Capitol Police following allegations of spying on Congress. Now, that's an interesting story. You can read more in The Federalist. U.S. and Japan have agreed to cut the Trump-era steel tariffs. And Democrat governors in Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, and other states plan to lift their school mask rules. Virginia's Supreme Court sided with Glenn Youngkin on his executive order against school mask mandates. And Ping Shua uh, denies accusing Chinese officials of sexual assault and announced her retirement from tennis. There's growing concern about what's actually going on with her in uh, the People's Republic. Well, on this day in history, 1693, a charter is granted for the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg in the Virginia colony. 1862, the Civil War Battle of Roanoke Island, North Carolina, ends in victory for Union forces led by General Ambrose Burnside. 1910, the Boy Scouts of America is incorporated. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. 1922, President Warren G. Harding has a radio installed in the White House. That was apparently a big deal. 1952, Queen Elizabeth II proclaims her accession to the British throne following the death of her father, King George VI. 1965, the Supremes record Stop in the Name of Love. It's released by Motown. And I just want want you to know that I knew all the motions. I knew all the words. I could do the dance that went along with it. Even though when I was growing up, you didn't dance, but I, I pretty much knew stop in the name of love. I could do it right now. And if Sam pressed me, I would do it right now. But no, I won't do it. Anyway, 1993, General Motors sues NBC, alleging that Dateline NBC rigged two car truck crashes to show that the 1973 to 1987 GM pickups were prone to fires in side impact crashes. Well, NBC would settle the lawsuit the following day and apologize for its unscientific demonstration. And finally, on this day in history, 20 in the name of 2014, in an assertion of same sex marriage rights, Attorney General Eric Holder announces that same sex spouses could not be compelled to testify against each other, should be eligible to file for bankruptcy jointly and are entitled to the same rights and privileges of federal prison inmates in opposite sex marriages. He was, of course, the attorney general at that time. Well, President Trump has hauled in massive amounts of grassroots donations, but his fundraising prowess doesn't automatically transfer to those he's backing. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not he intends to run for reelection in 2024. But if this is any indication, while he's able to raise funds for himself, uh, apparently not so much for those uh, down ballot. 
Well, the former president's latest fundraising figures, uh, chock full of massive grassroots contributions, prove that he remains the most prolific rainmaker in the Republican Party. But as various fundraising committees hauled in $51 million during the second half of last year, and the former president could boast a war chest with $122 million cash on hand, as of the end of December. But his fundraising prowess is not magically transferring to many of the candidates he's endorsed in the 2022 election cycle. Former Senator David Perdue announced on Monday night that he uh, brought in $1.146 million in the first 56 days of his gubernatorial campaign as his primary challenge is um, conservative Governor Brian Kemp. Perdue was uh, dramatically outraised or has been dramatically outraised by Kemp who uh, last month raked in over $7 million uh, during the second half of 2021. A Kemp spokesperson called Purdue's fundraising embarrassing. And Purdue's fundraising total pales in comparison to Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams, who hauled in $9.2 million during the first two months of her second straight bid for Georgia governor. The folks who get Trump's endorsement, everyone thinks that it's uh, just automatically going to get you all of this cash, but you need to have an operation in place in order to collect it. That's according to one veteran GOP operative. It was kind of stunning to see Purdue, who had a huge operation and raised millions upon millions in Georgia's Senate runoff elections a year ago, just couldn't capitalize, noted the operative who uh, asked to remain anonymous to speak more freely. Well, Purdue's uh, far from the only Trump-endorsed candidates who's yet to light it up when it comes to fundraising. Now, the assumption is you get an endorsement and Cash is going to roll in. In Arizona, Trump-endorsed gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake touted her historic grassroots fundraising. But Lake's 2021 haul of $1.5 million trailed four other GOP candidates also vying for their party's nomination. And in Maryland, GOP's gubernatorial primary, Trump-backed state Delaware Dan Cox, was far outraised by GOP rival Kelly Schulz, a former state commerce secretary. In the battle for the Senate, Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, who's running for the GOP, held open seat in his home state, raised a paltry $382,000. Now, it sounds a lot to me and probably to you, but that's during the final three months of last year and in a political campaign. That's not much. That's far behind the total raised by one of his top rivals, Katie Britt, who hauled in $1.2 million during the same period, and Britt outraised Brooks $5 million to $2.2 million last year. In North Carolina, another race where the former president took sides in a contested GOP primary for an open Senate seat. He endorsed um, uh, last June Representative Ted Budd. Uh, didn't initially fuel the candidates' um, fundraising. It took until October, December, the fourth quarter of fundraising, for Bud to outraise his chief GOP rival, former Governor Pat McCrory. Well, just a few examples of uh, the former president's fundraising not transferring to down ballot um, races, which may be telling or may not of the possible run for a second term that many are speculating about for the former president. Diana Holden has uh, been looking for an opportunity to step down at her church's as the church's worship leader for a few years. She served for 27 years. She felt like she was drawing from an empty well. I love the whole thing, she says, even to my exhaustion. She was leading every Sunday, managing other musicians and planning uh, every service for her 200 person church in Kelso, Washington. I am a devoted person. 
and a martyr to my demise. I just go for it and try to be faithful. Then, as the pandemic heightened the emotional and logistical demands of her unpaid position, she decided it was time. So in January of last year, she wrote in a Facebook post that she was grateful to have someone to take over the music ministry for her. She was ready to step away. She didn't have any reserves left. It wasn't something I really hated in the end, she said. I was just tired. Well, the emotional and spiritual toll of pastoral work is leading many to reevaluate their place in ministry. According to a Barna study that was released in November of last year, 38% of senior pastors have seriously considered leaving full-time ministry in the past year. Pastors are facing more intense scrutiny and pressure, according to a, a counselor who works with pastors as the director of Marble Retreat in Marble, Colorado. Uh, There are unique aspects of music ministry, however, that leave leaders particularly vulnerable to burnout. Worship pastors are spiritual leaders, they're performers, they're managers, creative directors, and tech support. Being on stage has always made them the target of critical feedback, but after the past two years, they're finding that criticism they might have easily shaken off in the past hits, well, just a little bit harder. You know, we have a pastor appreciation month. Worship leaders, not so much. Well, the year 2020 obviously brought upheaval and countless logistical challenges for worship teams as churches moved their services online, stopped meeting in person, or pivoted to smaller gatherings. But the stress of 2021, worship leaders say, was more relational. They had to manage illness on their teams, make decisions about asking singers and other musicians to wear masks, all while trying to meet the increased need for pastoral guidance and counsel in their churches. I've had to shepherd people even more, said one worship leader in uh, Arizona. People think that when you're a worship leader, your job is to pick out some songs and schedule some people and be ready for the weekend. That's part of the job, but it's uh, if you're truly a shepherd or worship pastor, there's much more involvement in taking care of the sheep. And while the offstage relational aspects of the job are getting more difficult, the onstage leadership remains as demanding as ever. I bring it up because, well... A lot of these folks are burned out um, and need some encouragement, some support. The church needs to give worship pastors permission to step aside, schedule a smaller team, wait to introduce new songs or even do fewer songs. Worship pastors need to give themselves permission to do those things as well. According to uh, the survey, they feel guilt or fear uh, or concern that it won't be good enough, said one observer, and they need to wrestle with that in themselves and say it's going to be fine. God's will and worship will be accomplished. So worship leaders in the midst of all of this challenge are facing some difficulties. Meanwhile, there are other difficulties that are part of living in a, a secular culture that I wanted to bring to your attention with two delivery drivers suing over schedules Sabbatarian Christians find their observance increasingly countercultural in a 24-7 economy. Again, just another challenge of being a Christian in the 21st century. Uh, Mailboxes used to go empty on Sundays, and for the most part do, but not anymore. America's biggest retailer, Amazon, ships seven days a week, and as the site expands Sunday delivery across the country, more drivers are losing what would have been a steady day off. Now, for many, the shift just means their break will fall during the week. But for some Christians on the job, this new delivery option conflicts with Sunday church services and their conviction not to work on the Sabbath, which is the Lord's Day from, for most Christians and not the Saturday before for some. Anyway, Amazon's seven days a week schedule has already led to two lawsuits from drivers 
uh, who were fired for not working on Sundays. Both claimed religious discrimination under Title VII, alleging their employer had not provided reasonable accommodation for them to work other days. In a case in Florida, a Sabbatarian Christian, as they're being referred, lost his job working for a delivery service contracted by Amazon, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission launched a lawsuit on his behalf. Well, last week, he secured a $50,000 settlement, and his former company, Tampa Bay Delivery Services, will undergo religious sensitivity training. For a postal worker in Pennsylvania, though, the case is making its way through the Third Circuit Court of Appeals after a district court ruled last year in favor of the U.S. Postal Service. Mr. Goff is an evangelical Christian who began working as a rural mail carrier in 2012, a part-time role rotating through holiday and weekend routes based on demand. Well, after the station he was working for began contracting with Amazon for Sunday delivery, he transferred to another rural station. When that one also started Sunday routes, he tried to adjust his schedule and swap days, but ended up missing 24 Sundays of work in 2017 and 2018 before being let go in 2019. Well, last week, his legal team issued oral arguments on his behalf, saying the Postal Service discriminated against him because of his faith. And it's being taken up by the courts. Um, The University of Toledo law professor Howard Friedman uh, has seen reasonable accommodation cases continue to rise on his um, religious clause blog. Seven-day Adventists, Orthodox Jews, had um, often come up in religious accommodation cases because their conviction to rest and worship on Saturdays put them in conflict with typical work schedules. Historically, work schedules and holidays tended to be in line with Christian or at least mainline Protestant religious and holiday schedules and practices, he said. More recently, as we've moved to the 24-7 economy, Sunday work schedules have become more common and pose conflicts for Christians that previously were um, felt mainly by minority religions. I think about Eric Little, who was an Olympic athlete who decided he would not compete on Sunday and seeing that played out in the drama that led him to change the um, uh, the competition he engaged in the Olympics, which, of course, if you know the story, he won. But it's a challenge for some in our 24-7 economy. When we come back, we'll talk about one Pentecostal nurse who refused to wear scrub pants who's won a settlement after being sued for religious discrimination. The health care provider who rescinded her job offer agreed to provide back pay and damages. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just to give you a heads up, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with John Hopper. He is the author of Questioning God, Answering Questions Worth Asking. The book is published by Search. And on Thursday, uh, Tony Ranke, um, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Uh, that's coming up on Thursday. Well, a Tennessee-based health care provider is going to pay $75,000 to settle a religious discrimination lawsuit. It involves an apostolic Pentecostal nurse who wanted to wear a scrub skirt to work. I'm not sure what difference it would have made, but it was important to the hospital because they said no. Well, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission said the company denied the nurse's right to religious accommodation. WellPath LLC hired Christian nurse Melinda 
um, Babineau in 2019 to provide health services at Central Texas Correctional Facility in San Antonio. Well, after accepting the um, the job offer, she informed the company's human resources team that her religious beliefs required her to wear a scrub skirt rather than traditional scrub pants to work in accordance with modesty codes. Well, the company declined to accommodate her request and rescinded her job offer. Well, according to the lawsuit, she had previously worn scrub skirts in other nursing positions. So this wasn't for her unusual, but something new apparently for them. Scrub skirts, while rarely seen in American hospitals, are preferred by some religious women, typically for modesty reasons. In a 2010 post on the Nursing Forum website, allnurses.com, a woman introduced herself as a Pentecostal woman who wears skirts instead of pants for religious reasons and asked, is it okay for me to wear scrub skirts in a clinical setting? And another thread on the same website, another poster criticized scrub skirts, saying that they limit your range of motion when providing patient care and that nurses have to be routinely um, have not routinely worn skirts since they earned some respect as a profession. Now, you might recall nurses always wore dresses historically. Well, last month, a future medical student who is a Muslim asked other Reddit users whether it was common to see scrub skirts saying dressing modestly is important to me and I don't want to give it uh, give it up when there are skirt scrubs available. Another user replied, I've seen Orthodox Jewish nurses wearing them. Nobody um, bats an eye. Well, the EEOC filed a lawsuit in September of 2020 on behalf of this particular nurse, Babineau, citing a violation of the Title VII uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibits religious discrimination. Now, the settlement required WellPath to provide the nurse with $75,000 for back pay and compensatory damages. They also agreed to inform employees of their rights and to provide anti-discrimination training that includes matters related to religious dress and grooming. Apparently, under federal law, when a workplace rule conflicts with an employee's sincerely held religious practice, an employer must attempt to find a workplace solution, a workable solution. Uh, the trial attorney for the EEOC's uh, field office in a press release said, well, this settlement should underscore the importance of employers taking affirmative steps to comply with their obligation under anti-discrimination laws. Well, I mentioned at the beginning of uh, today's program that Oregon has made the determination to lift the mask mandate by March the 31st. Now, Oregon health officials will end the mandate for indoor public places and schools no later than March 31st and might do so earlier if COVID-19 hospitalizations drop to around 400 occupied beds, according to the Oregon Health Authority. Uh, Oregon is one of only 11 states with an indoor mask mandate, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And health officials expect to see about 400 COVID uh, hospitalizations by the end of next month, about the same number as before the Omicron wave. If hospitalizations drop to that number earlier, the state's going to consider lifting the mandate then. We'll see what happens. Uh, Once the mandate is lifted, businesses will be free to set their own mask policies and health, uh, according to the health authority. So while the state will not require masks, some businesses might, and you would be required to follow their protocols. Well, Oregon announced its uh, projected end date for masks at the same time it extended the existing requirements that would have uh, expired by the end of this week. The state officials uh, unveiling what they refer to as new permanent rules uh, to extend those along with the promise to end the requirement by March the 31st. 
Now, the state's decision to extend the masking requirements beyond this week came despite hours of testimony that opposed the permanent rule. And again, I don't know why they refer to it as permanent. It's not intended to be so. And it irks so many. But the health authority published summaries with some of the concerns expressed in those uh, public testimonies and provided responses, including information about mask safety and the rationale behind mandating masks for everyone, including the vaccinated. So Oregon has made the uh, decision that it will, in fact, uh, lift that uh, mandate no later than March the 31st, but possibly sooner. One can only hope that that will be the case. We'll have to see what um, what happens. Well, I want to let you know that you can win $1,000 in our Cash for Couples contest. Well, February is the month we celebrate all things L-O-V-E, and we're giving you the chance to design your own Valentine celebration with $1,000 cash for couples promotion. Plan a weekend away, a special night out, or a gift you've both been saving uh, get to kpdq.com today, click on Cash for Couples to enter, and you can increase your chances by entering each day between now and February the 28th. So you'll have to retrofit your <laughs> your Valentine's Day celebration because you have uh, until the 28th of this month. Plus, share this contest on your social media to earn 10 bonus entries for each of your friends who also enter. It's our annual First time I've heard of it, but it's our annual Cash for Couples contest with $1,000 that can help you celebrate in a big way. Details at kpdq.com. Also, you can win an autographed copy of Pat Robertson's new book, The Power of the Holy Spirit in You from KPDQ. Uh, If you want a better understanding and are uh, hungry to know more about um, the Holy Spirit that's available, um, uh, you can... Enter to win. Uh, First, you can enter once each day from now through the 28th of February. So while you're there, just sign up for everything, uh, which will increase your chances. Plus, we're providing bonus entry opportunities as well. And if you're a member of the Loyal Listeners Club, get uh, 30% off the retail price of the book, plus free shipping. You can enter to win the power of the Holy Spirit in you today at kpdq.com. And uh, once again... Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk with John Hopper. He is the author of Questioning God, Answers, or rather, Answering Questions Worth Asking. The book is published by Search. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Sam Maupin for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with co-authors Tim Muehlhoff and Richard Langer, both PhDs, Winsome Conviction, I would highly recommend either you check it out on the podcast or just order the book. It will help all of us to live in unity, in the unity of the faith. Hey, have a great night. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.